morning, everyone. My name is Olivia, and I am the pastor of worship and care here at Journey Church, and I am always just so humbled to get to bring good news to you because we desperately need the real good news. And um, a few weeks ago, we had um, a little lunch after church that we have periodically throughout the year called Meet the Church Family Lunch. And somebody there asked a really good question. They said, when we read scripture and at the end of it, we say, um, this is the word of the Lord. And then everyone says, thanks be to God. And they were asking about that. And if we came up with it or how that got started, I wish we came up with it. I wish we were that cool. But it actually goes back many, many, many years ago, back to even Latin, when they would say, um, like, solo de gloria, to God be the glory, and thanks be to God. And it actually comes from acknowledging publicly together that the word of God reveals God's heart for us, God's character. And actually comes from scripture in First Peter where um, it says, uh, the word of the Lord endures forever. And Second Corinthians, it says, thanks be to God. And so if you've ever been wondering, like, what is this? Is this a journey church thing? It it's actually goes back to like Catholic churches and Episcopal churches and Lutheran churches um, and kind of more traditional churches. And, it, and it's just something that we, we all are basically saying, thank you, God, for revealing yourself. Um, when I w first um, was teaching my kids manners, trying to teach them manners, um, I taught them thank you in sign language and please first. Because it's really interesting that our bodies can learn to say thank you before our speech can. And we're going to talk about that today in this passage in John where we see someone whose body says thank you and we see this posture of gratitude. One of my kids who I won't name really loved blueberries and they would like, it was, became like a gang sign. It was like, they would just like pound their chest and say please and lots of thank you um, because they were just like inhaling blueberries, very aggressive thank yous. And so... Um, that's why we say, thanks be to God. Um, so today we're going to kick off this passage. This is the very end of John chapter 11 and the beginning of John chapter 12. And so this is our passage today. And it'll be up on the screen. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead, which we just read about last week. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, which I find funny because I'm like, well, he was already raised from the dead once. But it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So to recap, Jesus is in the town of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, about two miles walking distance to Jerusalem. And he's at the home of this sibling trio, which we've now come to get to know a little bit, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who he's recently raised from the dead. And they are throwing a dinner party in Jesus's honor. I'm guessing to say thank you for bringing our brother back from the dead. And also, it says this is six days before the Passover, so we know that we are now beginning the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. The next time Friday rolls around, it's going to be Good Friday. So this week is going to be very, very intense for Jesus. And what's interesting is that John gives more attention, the Gospel of John gives more attention to the last week of Jesus' life than any of the other Gospels. Nearly a half of the book of John is devoted to this one week, this final week of Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because we're only now beginning of chapter 12. We have kind of a ways to go. And that's how important this last week is. And so Jesus decides to spend it with his closest friends. Um, I was recently Marco Poloing, which is a video app to connect with people, and a friend, and I was kind of just commiserating with her that over the last two years, some friendships have changed, you know, with not seeing people and just different ways things have played out. And I was just grieving the loss of a friendship, really, that feels like more distant than it used to be. And she said, you know, Olivia, there's sometimes friends for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. She's like, I know this might sound cheesy, but I was like, man, it's good. A season, a reason, or a lifetime. And I feel like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are lifetimers. They're lifers for Jesus. If you know you're going to go into the hardest week of your life, the hardest day of your life, it makes sense that he would want to spend this some time just being like just some life-giving, refueling time with his closest friends. And so that's what he does. And he spends this in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so today we're going to look at this anointing story, Mary's anointing of Jesus. There's so many things we can learn, but I want to highlight three of those things today. And the first one is this, that the heart at the heart of worship is sacrifice. We see this sacrifice that Mary is literally pouring out on Jesus, and it's a sacrifice of love, a sacrifice of trust. And the beautiful thing, as I'm sure you figured out when you're the giver of a gift, is that the worship God instructs us to do often offers something for us too, right? It does something for us. Um, Sometimes when you're the giver, you actually get more out of giving than the receiver. It tells us in verse 3, Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. I love that John includes that detail because your sense of smell of all your five senses is the one that's close, most closely connected to your memories. Maybe that's happened to you where all of a sudden you smell something and you have a memory of something or somebody. Whenever I smell freshly cut grass, I, in the springtime, I get this feeling of like being in the blocks and attract me and I get nervous. I don't have to do it anymore, but I still just think of this. I love that smell of like fresh cut grass and just a beautiful track. And that's what it reminds me of, these memories. And so this whole house is filled with this. I often wonder in this story, like how long did Mary's hair smell that way? Did it smell that way all the way, you know, a few days later when Jesus was on the cross? Could she still smell that? And so your olfactory system, which is your sense of smell, is so closely tied to memory. And it's interesting she uses that. 
It also tells us, if you look in your Bible, you should see a little, like, a little letter or a little something near when it says a year's wages. And somewhere in your Bible, it should say 300 denarii. That's how much that was equivalent to. So they got paid, like a laborer in that day got paid one denarii, which was their form of money. So 300, you think about it, you take out weekends and Sabbath days when you're not working, 300 days, a year's wages, this is how much this is worth. And this essence of nard had to come from like the Himalayas in India. It had to be traveled and imported in. So it was very, very expensive. Some biblical scholars think this might have been a wedding gift for Mary. Maybe it was part of her dowry. Who knows what it was, but she had it. And it was a humongous gift to pour on Jesus' feet. What's really interesting and contrasting is that here Judas is, you know, saying all this stuff, chastising her, and in only a few days, he's going to try to sell Jesus' life for only 30 pieces of silver. So I looked up nard. It's actually now called spike nard. I'm kind of a hippie. I'm like half hippie. Some of my friends are like, because they know. Like, I make my own soap, but then I eat Sour Patch Kids. So, I mean, I don't know that you can count that as a hippie. But I do like my essential oils. I'm not going to lie. And I looked it up. And this is how much in today's money, $2,986. I love that it says, though, subscribe and save 10%. (laughs) Woohoo! now it's down to $2,600. But this is still, you can buy this today. This was one of the cheaper ones. I actually found one for over 10 grand. I was like, I'm sorry, but I'm going to stick with my lavender. So this is spikenard, and this is like what she, what she poured on Jesus' feet. My dad, um, like a lot of young men in his day, was drafted into Vietnam without a choice, unless you escaped to Canada or, or tried to appeal it. And so he, as a very young man, went over and served in the Vietnam War. And while he was there, um, he decided to do something extravagant for my grandma, for his mom. And um, I want to read to you because I actually called him up because I wanted to make sure I got the story right. And this is what he said. I don't remember us having matching stuff as a kid. For context, my dad is one of seven children, and my grandma grew up during the Great Depression. I don't remember us having a lot of matching stuff as a kid. Our plates and silverware were a hodgepodge of things. When I got over to Vietnam, I got to thinking about my mom and how I went, and then I went to the exchange store. We got paid in military payment certificates once a month, and I found out how much the whole thing was going to cost. And I saved up enough months until I had enough built up to buy her a china set. I ordered it in a catalog, a full Noritake china set, and a silverware set, and a tea set too. A 100-plus piece set of china with service for 18. I know. When I was registering for china, I was like, maybe I'll get six. (laughs) Service for 18. And I thought, I'm getting the best of quality and quantity for my mom. My mom never had anything like that. I let her pick out the china pattern, and I had it shipped to her from Japan to Oregon. What's really cool about my grandma, who's now with the Lord, is that she started giving gifts back as she got older and didn't need them as much anymore to the people that gave them to her. And so my grandma gave this china set back to my dad and stepmom and gave me the silverware. And so I have some pictures up on the screen, brought it with me today. Super cool. Every Thanksgiving we get this out. And um, you can see, yeah, up on the screen too, there's 
literally service for 18, a whole, the whole tea set, every single thing. We set this out at Thanksgiving and we actually have manners and, and teach my kids how to set a table. And it's so beautiful. This is the box it came in. And my dad had this sent over um, to her while he was in Vietnam. And it's just this beautiful picture to me of what an extravagant gift looks like. And um, I love that my grandma gave it back to him. She wanted someone else to get to benefit from it too. And so it's always such a sweet memory for our family to pull that out, grandma's china. The first mention of worship in the Bible is actually in Genesis. And I always think it's really important when you are looking up something in the Bible and you want to really know what's the original intent, what was God's original design for this. And it comes in the story of Genesis with Abraham and Isaac when God is really, really testing Abraham because he's about to do a lot of hard things and he wants to know, do you really trust me? Do you really love me? And he has waited for a long, long time for his only son that he finally gets to have. And God tests him and says, really, you know, are you going to, are you going to make your son worth more than me or are you going to trust me with his life? And it's an incredible story that I wish we had time for, but God comes through, God delivers, God makes a way when there was no way. And what's really cool is that Abraham, as he takes his son up to this mountain to, to put, build an altar, says, let's go worship. That's the first time the word worship is ever used in the Bible. And it's really about sacrifice. And so the heart of worship is sacrifice. And Mary shows us this um, in this passage. The second thing that Mary's anointing shows us is the impact of responding to the call of love in the moment, in the here and now. It says in verse four, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief and he was the treasurer for the disciples. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is a very interesting passage. And I came across a Lent essay that was actually just written a few days ago by a woman named Debbie Thomas. And it's from a Lent essay called Beauty and Breaking. And I want to, it'll be on the screen. It's super good. I could just say this today and we'd be good and ready to go home, but it's, it's very good. So I'm going to try to read it slow. This is what she says about this, these verses. What is Jesus saying? That the poor don't matter? That we should accept poverty as inevitable and unfixable? I don't think so. In fact, many commentators argue that Jesus' reference here is to Deuteronomy 15.11, whose message about poverty and generosity is crystal clear. There will always be poor people in the land, therefore I command you to be open-handed. In other words, the call to care for the poor is constant. It never ceases. So what is it about Mary's extravagance that merits Jesus' blessing? And what is it about Judas's criticism that earns Jesus' rebuke? And this is it right here. Mary responds to the call of love in the moment, in the now, knowing that Jesus, what Jesus is about to face, knowing that he's in urgent need of companionship, comfort, and solace, knowing that the time is short, to express all the gratitude and affection she carries in her heart, Mary acts. Given the choice between an abstracted need, the poor out there, and the concrete need that presents itself at her own doorstep around her own dinner table, Mary chooses the here and now. She loves the body and soul who is placed in her presence. 
In doing so, she ends up caring for the one who is denied room at the inn, even to be born, for the one who has no place to lay his head during his years of ministry, for the one whose crucified body is laid in a borrowed tomb. In other words, it is the poor Mary serves when she serves Jesus, just as it always as it is always Jesus we serve when we love without reservation what God places in front of us here and now. It's so good. And it reminds me of Proverbs. In Proverbs, there's a passage that says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Don't say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. This story in scripture is pretty famous, um, and so throughout many years, there's been a lot of artwork about it, and I wanted to show you just four of them today, um, and these pieces of artwork really show how Mary is responding to love in the moment. The first one is from a woman named Julia Stankova from Bulgaria, and each one of these shows kind of a slightly different take on it, which I love about artistry, um, and if you notice like in this one, you really see more of the, the men's faces. This is actually a stained glass in a church in Israel. This one's called Anointed. And if you look up in the left corner, what do you notice? It's kind of tiny. I had to look at it for quite a while. But I realized that this is the Magi in the corner. And this is really powerful that this man named Nigel Groom from United Kingdom painted. At Jesus' birth, we see that the Magi have traveled a long time. It actually took them like a couple years to follow the star. They make it to Jesus's house when he's a toddler and they, the first thing they do is bow down and they worship him and they give him sacred oil. And this thing, this full circle thing that happened at Jesus's birth is now happening right before his death. And Mary's saying, I'm giving you dignity. I'm giving you the same worth that you had at your birth with sacred oil bending down at his feet. It's a really beautiful um, picture. This last one is probably my favorite of all the ones I came across by a nam- man named Daniel Gerhardt. And I love what he says. He says, my desire as an artist is that the images I paint would point to the creator and not to me, the conveyor. J.S. Bach said it well as he signed his work, all of his music, Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And I love that these images really show the contrast of what will happen in a few days because Jesus' feet on Good Friday are going to have a stake driven through them. And I often wonder, like, if Jesus, when he was on the cross, because people in trauma sometimes transport themselves back to a better day and something that they can just fixate on that is outside of the trauma happening to them. And I wonder if Jesus remembered this moment when he was on the cross and his feet were so bloodied and he was thinking about Mary and how tenderly she gave him dignity. Um, A few years ago, I had an example of this kind of thing where someone just loved me in the moment. And I think this story really highlights the healthiness of good physical touch because we obviously can have negative physical touch, but healthy physical touch. And um, it was a few years back, and I had gotten a health diagnosis that really came out of nowhere, really upended my life. And I had, like, that year, I remember when I was doing my taxes, 
um, I was adding up like all of these things and I realized I had an average of one appointment a week that year. That's how like overwhelming this health thing was for me. And at this time, I really wanted my haircut. Sometimes when you're going through a lot of really junky stuff, you just need a good haircut. And usually when I get to that point, I needed it like three weeks ago, like yesterday. And um, so my friend, who actually used to be my former student when I was a teacher, became a hairdresser. She was my hairdresser at the time, an incredible person, incredible follower of Jesus. And I texted her and I said, I really need my haircut, but I don't think I can come into a salon right now because if you all know, salons, you know, everyone hears everything. It's like a fishbowl in there. And I just knew, I knew that I was like an open wound. You know, sometimes we get to the point where we're a scab or a scar, but I, my, this, this thing in my life was, I just, I knew I was going to fall apart if I saw her and she hugged me. And I just didn't think I could do it again. So I said, I, is there any time I could come in where there's not going to be a lot of people around, like on a lighter day? And she's like, Olivia, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open the salon for you at night when no one's here. And um, you can just come in. It'll just be the two of us. And I couldn't believe she was offering to do this. Um, this person that I had been her teacher, that I had poured into her, was now pouring into me. And it was so beautiful. So I show up. I'm thinking, I can't believe you. She had little kids at the time. She you know, left them at home with her husband, came to the salon, opened it up really late, and she gave me the best <laughs> deep scalp massage I have ever had in my life. It was like 10 minutes long. Have you ever had a scalp massage? It's amazing. And she just, I literally poured it out. Like I just cried while she was massaging my head. And, um, and she just let me grieve. She let me be myself very vulnerably and also cut and colored my hair, which made me feel a lot better. Um, and it was this beautiful example of what Mary does, of loving somebody in the here and now, in the moment. Maybe, I don't even know if she remembers that, but it was a humongous deal to me um, because she, she showed me healthy physical touch and she loved me right in the moment with what she had. Because Mary, what does she have? She has her hair and she has this, for whatever reason, this really expensive, amazing nard essential oil and she uses what she has right in front of her. The third thing that Mary's anointing of Jesus shows us is identity. When we decide who Jesus is, we know who we are. And if there's one thing I could like zero in and hone in on today, it's this. So much of the chapter of, of the book of John from chapter one up until right now, chapter 12, which now we enter Jesus' last week of life. So much of this entire book has been about getting to know who Jesus is. In fact, we called the beginning of this series, Come and See, because that's what he says at the beginning. He invites people, come and see who I am. And now we've shifted, if you, in case you haven't seen all the graphics for quite a while, come and believe, because then the next invitation is come and find out who do you think I am. And a few you know, weeks back, month back or so, I preached on a different passage in John and highlighted C.S. Lewis's quote about Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. It has to be one of those three things. That's what people in this whole, you know, book so far have been arguing about. And Mary decides that Jesus is her Lord, her King. And so she knows who she is. She's confident in her true identity. She's not just Lazarus's sister or Mary of Bethany or the one, the sister who doesn't like to do housework. She is a beloved daughter of the king, 
a child of God. It reminds me of my favorite Christmas song, O Holy Night, when it says, then he appeared and the soul felt its worth. So her assuredness in Jesus's identity gives her the assuredness in her own identity, so much so that she doesn't care what everyone else in the room thinks. She doesn't care that women typically didn't let their hair down in this culture. It was very like a faux pas, major taboo, to let your hair down, especially in front of a a whole room of men. She doesn't care that people might think she's totally crazy to pour a year's worth of work on Jesus' feet. And all of this is because she knows her identity. Mary's posture is to get low, to be meek and humble. Christ is first and she is second. She doesn't try to elevate herself. In fact, the three times we see Mary in scripture, every single time she's at Jesus' feet. If you remember the story way back, um, she is, Jesus is teaching and that's when Martha's serving and in the kitchen doing all, all of the things and Mary is at his feet. And the second time we see that is when her brother dies and she is deeply mourning, deeply grieving, saying, God, I know you could heal him. And she's grieving at Jesus' feet. And now the third time, here she is. She's figured it out. She's been paying attention. Jesus has been predicting his death and she knows this is coming. And so she is giving him worth, sitting at his feet. I think that... Um, the thing that's really powerful about that is when you go back to the very, very beginning, um, because the Bible is cover to cover, we see that the original sin, even before Adam and Eve, which people think of as the first one, but even before that, we have Satan and God having this interaction and Satan wanting to be, Lucifer wanting to be elevated above God, wanting to be higher than. And almost every single sin we can think of goes back to this issue of us wanting to elevate ourselves above somebody else. And Mary's doing the opposite. She is getting low. We have a friend um, whose job is very much in the public eye. In fact, he's on TV a lot. His performance is very scrutinized. And he recently shared with us that before high-pressure situations, he looks at his phone which we've seen him do before when he's on TV, um, where he has written down things about who God says he is, about his real identity, so that he's reminded of um, how that contrasts what the world says about him. Because as you know, in 2022, people like to comment. People like to say things. It's a very um, brash, harsh world out there. And so he wrote down things like this. I am a giant I am a warrior. I am a teacher. I bring joy to a room. I'm a child of God. And he reminds himself, even though you would think he, must, he has to be pretty secure in himself to do this very hard public job, every single one of us struggles with identity. Every single one of us in this room. I've seen it um, with a lot of the high schoolers I work with. I've literally told them, <laughs> I wish I could take my eyeballs out, my eyes, if it didn't kill me, and put them in your eyeballs because I want you to see how everyone else sees you, how the people in your life that let, really know you and love you, how they see you. Because it's hard to be a high schooler in 2022. It's hard. I can't imagine trying to compare myself with the rest of the world, you know, on like Instagram or every whatever, TikTok. I mean, it's just, it's a lot. And so identity is constantly being challenged. And you're constantly being confronted with this. And I also see it on the opposite end of the age spectrum. Just because we get older doesn't mean we don't struggle with identity. I struggle with identity. 
I've seen people as they retire, when they ask the question, when do I stop doing the thing that's always defined me? It's a huge deal when you've spent your whole career, your whole vocation doing something, and then you don't. You're like, who am I? People in their 80s can struggle with identity. And here Mary has figured out, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is Lord of my life, so I know who I am. I am a daughter of the king, and nothing can take that away from her. That's what gives her the courage to do this crazy thing of this beautiful sign of worship in this room when everyone else is looking at her like she's lost her mind. What's really cool, and this will be on the screen, is that this same story, the same account is also told in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, and they both have the exact same verse of Jesus' words about this whole beautiful display, this whole anointing. And he says about Mary, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, like today, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So here we are preaching the good news today, talking about this beautiful story of Mary anointing Jesus. And she's honored in this. This is how she's remembered. How do you want to be remembered? Um, we are finishing up March Madness. It's actually April now. But uh, I came across, I love basketball, and I came across a video of a Wisconsin Badgers men's uh, basketball team player. Of course, you know, they interview these guys. I feel so bad for them. They, he's this, this particular athlete you're about to watch. He spent five years playing because of COVID. They got like a bonus year. So he spent five years on this team. He's a senior. He just played his last game probably ever in his life for basketball they lost by only a couple points. They didn't make it to the Sweet 16. And they interview them. They interview them while they're crying and seeing these young men cry. It just kills me. And they ask him these questions. But he got asked a very, very good question about how he wants to be remembered. And I want you to, to listen to this. I'm all on WFRV TV right here. Um, Brad, how do you want people to remember you when they look back on your career with, with Wisconsin? Just somebody who gave their heart and soul to trying to be a great teammate and a great leader and a great friend and brother. Um, trying to do everything he could to help his team win. Um, but to be honest, I hope basketball is not the first thing that people think about when they think of me. Um, I hope it's about an interaction that we had or maybe a picture or an autograph or a conversation. Um, I hope it's something bigger than basketball or just me wearing the 34 jersey. I hope that's how my teammates see me and my coaches view me as well. And Because um, those are the things that I really value. I love the game of basketball, but I know that I'm not defined by my performance or wins or losses. Um, I know where my identity lies. and um, That's what scripture says about me, but that's also what my teammates think about me and my coaches and my family and my friends. And So, you know, I'm content. Um, so with that being said, I just hope people remember me as a great teammate and great leader and great friend. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. And I love what this young man says. He's got it figured out, and he's probably going to have to replay that in his mind through the years as he gets older, because we don't ever achieve this really solid understanding of identity. We have to be reminded over and over again. 
Mary's anointing of Jesus shows us also what Jesus did for us because these very same things she did, he did. The heart of worship is sacrifice and in a few days he would show that to the world, show that to us. The impact of responding to the call of love in the moment, in the here and now, Jesus was a professional at that. He modeled that. That's how Mary knew what to do. And he also was secure in his identity, in the Trinity. And so he knew who he was. And that is the beauty of this passage. And that's the beauty of what we get to do today with communion. As Pastor Scott comes up, we get to take that. And I'm really thankful that our board, um, our leadership board, is going to help serve that today. um, Because I think this passage just shows so much humanity, so much healthy touch. Um, and it's restorative, and it's, it's redemptive, and it's what we, we need in our, in our day right now. Thank you, Olivia. I think the story, it, it sets us up well for the opportunity for us to take communion together. And at this point, I'm going to invite just a few people to come up um, and take a spot. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to invite you to come down to take communion like, like you normally would. But today you're going to be served communion. They're just going to hold out the, the tray and hold out the, the, the bread, and, and you'll pick it up. But they're going to say something to you. As you grab the bread, they will say, this is the body of Christ given for you. And as you take the cup, they will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out to you. In John, we read that there's, there's no greater love than to lay down your life, than for one to lay down their life for a friend. And at the end of, of John, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is introducing communion, at the end of that, when after he talks about how Jesus you know, broke the bread and, and distributed it, gave the thanks and said, do this in remembrance of me. And he, he handed out the cup and he gave thanks. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And listen to what Paul says at the end of that. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As Olivia talked about today, love often looks like sacrifice. And it truly did on Good Friday when Jesus gave his body and when he shed his blood for us. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You proclaim his sacrifice. You proclaim his love. That's what I hope that we will hear this morning as we come and we receive these elements that we will hear. You are loved. You are beloved. You are mine. So when you are ready, you can come uh, to receive the elements and then you can just take those at your seat whenever you are, whenever you are ready. Never let me go
often when we when you send we send you out of this place we say that you're not leaving the presence of Jesus in this place but you are taking the presence of Jesus with you where, wherever you go and in this morning as as Olivia was preaching from from the gospel where we learn not only Christ's identity but but our identity in Christ and we learn that that his love is is a sacrificial love that we can offer outside of this place and that it's it's a love that can take place in the here and now. It can happen in your homes, in your workplaces, in your family, in your community, in every other place where you find yourself. So as you go today, I just pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would take that kind of sacrificial love into those places and that you would be blessed as you do. And we look forward to seeing you next Sunday as we start Holy Week uh, with Palm Sunday. We can't wait to move towards Easter, Easter together. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you soon.